Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. We are recording on Sunday, Roger Federer's 40th birthday, August 8th. Um, So we will get to that and talk about Federer, the birthday boy, uh, later. But uh, let's just hit our our news topics as we debrief from Washington, D.C., Rafael Nadal played a, a tough one in the first round against Jack Sock, came through it in a third set tiebreak, uh, but then fell in his next match um, against Lloyd Harris. I felt a lot of mixed emotions with Nadal in DC because you saw how big he was for the event, Joel, but then also his tennis and his foot kind of put a dampener on the, the whole occasion. It was fascinating. I mean, you could see the action, the excitement. It's kind of nice. We got fans watching and the DC crowd was rocking and rolling. It's great to see that. Great to see him making his debut in the nation's capital and all of that, but uh, had to work extra hard to beat Sock and not enough versus Harris. So that was, um, and give give the credit to Harris, but it was, it was fun tennis. It was great to watch. It was kind of like a real bolt of energy in that US Open series. It was interesting to me that I thought Nadal looked very fit in terms of his conditioning and fitness, as he always does. Do we expect anything less? And there was a great point in the sock match, late in the match, it might have been in the tiebreak, where he, Rafa comes all the way from the back of the court uh, to retrieve a drop shot and then does his no-look cross-court volley winner. I mean, it was just incredible Rafa-like tennis. Uh, But then he turns around very quickly to walk back, and I could tell he was wincing in pain. And then immediately after the match, he was interviewed on Tennis Channel, and he admitted, foot's not great. I feel pain, but not enough to not play tomorrow. So he plays against Harris, and uh, I didn't see any pain or, or any wincing or anything like that. But I did think he looked a little bullied by Harris's serve. Now, look, this is D.C., I mean, think of think of like the the clay run ups where Rafa might lose at Monte Carlo or something like that. And at the time, it seems like, oh, but then, you know, he finishes up where it counts. Well, hard course, though, always a little different for Nadal, too. So we'll see how it plays out. And these younger players who have built their games to deal with Nadal. I mean, we're multiple generations into this era of these three. And uh, <clears throat> Nadal, of course, he'll have a have a chance in Canada if uh Lloyd Harris wins his first round match. Guess who he plays in the second round? Yeah. Who do that, you feel? Who do you feel more concerned for, Harris or Nadal? Harris. <laughs> <laughs> the foot thing is is interesting because he had to miss time, and we talked about it on the last show. It was the primary reason why he skipped the um, Wimbledon and he skipped the Olympics and said so afterwards, which we all agreed was a classy move by him to just save it and let Novak um, have all the shine that, that he deserves, um, which a, 
I think is the proper etiquette in the sport is to maybe save it if something's bothering you and then tell us a little bit later. Um, but the foot at the same time is something that Nadal has dealt with his entire career. And I think that's good news because this is not some new injury that's popping up and it's not an injury that figures to be as debilitating as knee tendinitis. Uh, if I were to put on my, my doctor's hat, which I'm going to do with, with caution. Uh, but this is a pain injury. It does not pose a threat to really get worse. It is a bone condition that was a problem for him as early as 2004, when a doctor told him that it might jeopardize his ability to play tennis. And that doctor, uh, made the worst, the worst prediction in the history of the medical field when he said that. So in that respect, I don't think there's that much reason to panic. On the other hand, it's concerning to come back from something and immediately not, you know, see that it's resolved. Yeah. Welcome to 35. I mean, Federer's 40, Nadal's 35. I mean, this is what happens with these injuries and think of all the wear and tear these guys put on. And, and there's, I don't think there's any time of year that's more wear and tear than the uh, U.S. Open Series. North American hard courts yeah. between the weather and the courts. That's that's more wear and tear than the clay. The physicality and the, again, hard courts, that's a tough, tough go. And Nadal playing more of these events than he ever has. He'll end up playing three prior to the US Open. That's unprecedented for him. So is this something that kind of waxes and wanes, guys, in terms of the pain? Because I don't feel like this has been on my radar for a few years at least. Yeah, I haven't seen much of it, but it was something that went far back. So maybe, and again, we don't know all the, all the nuances of it. We, and it's funny about these injuries thing. I'm a, I get how it was good that Nadal didn't say anything in Paris. There's also part of me that says, why say something ever? Why do we, I mean, that's, you know, that was a little bit of the, why say something publicly ever, unless you feel, I don't know, the need to, but it's all right. I mean, and Nadal, like, like Roger, like Novak, doesn't overly talk about his injuries. He just moves on. Yeah. So unless, unless, unless he can't play. And then he lets us know that what it really is. Right. And, and notably, in far, as far as it goes with waxing and waning, mm -hmm. it, it seemed fine in the Lloyd Harris match, which is it's strange because that's the one that he couldn't pull through. Uh, but he said it was better. He didn't have the pain on his face. You could just yeah. see it in his, in his face during the sock match that he was, uh, that he was struggling. So it, it does, you know, it looks like something that should be monitored. It clouds the mind, obviously anyone who's played through pain, like it's, it's really does affect the ability to play the best tennis. It was such a great show of grit, toughness, determination, that first match that Nadal played in DC in front of the crowd, it was a spectacle, but underneath that was a level of tennis that was far below what Rafa Nadal would expect. And then that continued on to the Lloyd Harris match. I don't think that Sock and Harris both played up to Nadal's level. No, no, no. I think Nadal played down to theirs. They were not doing anything spectacular. They are good players with punishing offensive games and Nadal's balls were landing short and they were unleashing uh, the, the power that they possess. That was my read on the Lloyd Harris match. Well, Stock has a singular science fiction shot in the forehand that kind of helps him in ways. And also I think 
I think we're going to be looking back at this whole period from the start of the pandemic through now into next year, into whatever about the whole cumulative effect of all the stresses around the pandemic that and how that's affecting consistency and you know tenacity and all the things that are that are in the minds and bodies of all these they're great athletes but they're still human beings yeah <clears throat> and and they who knows what's on what up with their family members the the stress i mean you know for for so many years the tennis circus has been it's banal the travel yeah airplane airplane hotel transportation it's almost like they're half asleep when they're doing that now think of it think of what air travel is for everyone yeah and think of how that kind of I mean, what, what, what do you call that, uh, Amy, galvanic skin response? You know, your kind of response to sort of like things that make you, that bring stress. So the effect of that and how that's going to eventually seep into the, the quality of the tennis is, I, I don't know if it's measurable, but it's present, present factor in how all these guys are competing. So a guy like Nadal might not be as, for all the private jets, for all the stuff, he's still occupying this world and it's, it's a strange time. Yeah, I, I haven't heard of the galvanic. Skin. Maybe I'm, I don't know. There, there's the Golgi tendon response. I know that one. If you hold a stretch too long, a, a stress response, but that really doesn't have to do with. Well, I'll probably get nailed by some of our viewers. Will say I don't know what the heck I'm talking about. So, it won't be <laughs> but uh, it's just the it's just the things that raise your your cortisol level or something that make mm -hmm. you kind of stressed. So, so instead of just Oh, I'm checking into a new hotel now. Okay, the bubble environment. I mean, we just saw we just saw Musetti got uh, taken out of the yeah. Canada tournament because he was violating some of the terms of the bubble. So there are all these kind of stresses on things, and mm -hmm. and I think for a tennis player like an athlete, I want my stress to be confined to where I have to play compete. All the other stuff should just be kind of easy for me, and now it's not, and that's going to weigh on the on the tennis. This is a ways away, but I'm really curious of the players who did the hard quarantine in Australia. First of all, what was the short-term and long-term effect of that? And, you know, the players that were on the flights that, that had COVID, so therefore they didn't get to practice and they had to be in their quarantined in their hotel room for the two weeks. Um, and also I'm curious as to whether those players will want to play Australia again. Um, but it doesn't really have anything to do with Nadal, but it, it, there is something about quarantining and there's been a lot of sitting around during the pandemic, even for these athletes. Um, so I, I agree with you 100%, Joel. There, there are effects that the pandemic has brought us that we don't even understand yet. Yeah, it's, it's again, it's back to uh, what we we talked about a little bit throughout 2020, but there's going to be different kinds of environments. I think uh, Canada is very much bubbled up and players are returning to a bubble and that will play an effect, I believe, on the results of the upcoming National Bank Open. But then they're going to go to Cincinnati. Life should feel pretty normal for them there. Then they're going to go to the U.S. Open and things should feel pretty normal. But, but, but here, Gail, I think we're talking, it's singular set, it'll be normal, but it's like, yeah. So I get, yes, the cumulative normal. effect of it is is it's not a factor. Like, it's not. Oh, Cincinnati, all good. No, it's still the planet's in a bubble. So yes, kind of, yes. Like, it's not like I. I, I mean, but so, but yeah. there's a difference, right? Nadal, 
Nadal went to see the Capitol building. Nadal was at the mall in Washington, D.C., was taking walks around Georgetown where Amy went to college. (laughs) That's what Nadal was doing in the lead up to the city open. In Montreal, there's going to be none of this or Toronto. But it's uh, not always it's not all as how would I put it of the moment. Do what I mean? It's not like it's it's a whole there. There's a whole major psychological study going on here. It's like, yeah. oh, good. Now I'm normal. Now I'm in a, oh, now I'm in a bubble. It's, I mean, yeah, these, the emotional impact. And again, what we don't know is what's going on in the family and friend life of all these people who have friends and family and civilians. I mean, and how that affects them and how they're communicating with them and what's going on in Spain with the, uh, with the country and these variants and all the things that are affecting the mind and the, and the tennis player the tennis player, usually the usual environment is it's, it's all cleared out of the way for me. I don't have to concern myself with anything else in the world. I get on planes. I'm not getting on planes and seeing people unmasked. You know, it's all pretty much kind of like a, you know, seamless kind of process. And that's been massively disruptive. And a sport like tennis, which travels the world, is even more like that. What future tournaments and, and the, the Asian circuit and all this stuff, it's all... It's all more complicated. Can we lovingly poke fun at Nadal for initially posting um, White House when he was standing in front of the Capitol building? And and I do cut him a ton of slack on that because this is in his country. So, and he changed it and fixed it, but I do like to just, his, Nadal and social media, as Gil has pointed out, they, they don't necessarily always mesh perfectly. <laughs> When I, if you would have asked five-year-old Gil what that building was, he probably would have said the White House. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's a five-year-old American, so. Um, so. Um, look, closing thoughts on, on Nadal going to Canada. He's going to need to improve his tennis. Um, and as, as Amy said, that's something we often see from him in the lead up to majors, especially recently is just making strides. But I think, no, make no mistake. This wasn't Lloyd Harris going crazy. It wasn't Jack Sock going crazy. No, Nadal just has some work to do. I think it's, it's fair to say in terms of uh, the level that, that he's bringing uh, Novak skips Canada. I think a, a wise move and it, you know, goes back to all the tennis he's played, the jet lag coming from Tokyo. And uh, I think, uh, I think a no brainer there. Absolutely. Just take a little time, gather himself, Cincinnati. There, there's no, there's no problem with his match sharpness. Yeah. Not like he needs many matches. He's going to have his matches. He's going to do his week in Cincinnati and then he'll be ready to go for the U S open. I agree. And of the three, I still think he's the best at knowing exactly what he needs going into a tournament. So whatever he says is perfect. Yep. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. 
And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, 40 years old. Um, I kind of want to, I mean, it's, it's interesting. What is, how did you feel this morning when you woke up? Roger Federer turns 40, Joel. Did you have a, a reaction to that in terms of reflecting and, and, and what that meant? I mean, how did that hit you? Well, first of all, I was thinking of the, the news aspect of Federer saying he's not going to play Canada or Cincinnati. And I'll say this, we all, I'm not a prediction person. I don't like making them. But this, more than anything, is, a, is the thing that most is most troubled me about Federer. Like, wow, this is really something. Is he, does that mean he's probably going to pull the cord in the U.S. Open? Because it's hard to imagine, or he's going to take a wild card into Winston-Salem. And it's hard to imagine him showing up to the U.S. Open without having played any hard court matches. So that leads me to think, is he going to pull out of the U.S. Open? And where does this send the career? In, in all the 20 years that he has played the U.S. Open, I mean, there was one year fairly recently in the teens where he didn't play because he was hurt. But uh, I think he played other than that. He's played since 99. Um, all except for one of those years, he played a hardcore warm-up, um, sometimes multiple hardcore warm up. So there was only that one time that he didn't do it and he lost to Andre Agassi in the round of 16. So uh, he's a creature of habit. I mean, he's a guy who likes his schedule and all that. So for him not to play any hardcore warm up, hmm, right? Well, that well yeah, it's... Is he going to play the, is that, is that the, is the subtext that he's not going to play the U.S. Open? I mean, right. so, that's the question. And then, and then you start to think, and if, they, and if that's the, if, so layer upon layers, it's like I, I feel like a, a detective in one of those movies where the detective keeps learning, oh, the thing I thought was going on isn't even what's going on. It's something else. It's something else. So Roger, Roger talks about the knee. Oh, no, no Olympics. We get that. No hardcore. Oh, no U.S. Open. No what? Is he, what's he going to We got the labor, labor cup. Doubles, yeah. only, doubles only. Eight game pro set. No ad. I mean. So you start thinking, hmm, what's what's being what's being pondered here? That's where we start to wonder what the sh- the shadow is like. You see these little second hands moving a little closer to midnight than we wanted to than we want to think. Yeah, no, it's a, it's been an yeah, it's been an extremely alarming stretch. The the fact that that he's coming back and it's almost like a false false comeback almost. Um, e- even though you know he 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 was. Uh, he found a little bit of consistency from Roland Garros to Wimbledon, at least a, a couple of tournaments in a row. Uh, it's easy to forget how healthy he was. And that's my takeaway from, from your nugget, Amy, is that Federer was the guy who didn't get injured because he moved so gracefully along the court. He didn't put stress on his body. Nothing about him and his game looked stressful. And that had, you know, I think we agree that has a lot to do with with his longevity. So not only is it a bad sign for anyone, but it's a sharp left turn from what we had grown accustomed to 
with Roger Federer? Well, he spoiled us. These guys who last long, they spoil us. And when you see them decline, it kind of illuminates their excellence. Their year after year after year of, of presence and results and matches. And now you see, oh, yes, right. We knew time waits for no one. And now it's here, maybe we'll see. I still want to say we'll see, but. Yeah. And, and anecdotally, I was speaking with someone from Texas a couple of weeks ago, and they told me that they were booking flights and buying tickets to the U.S. Open because they're not sure how long, how much longer Roger Federer is going to be around, and they want to make sure they see him one more time. I think that there are people going to great lengths to try to now plan a U.S. Open visit around seeing Roger Federer. And there's just this, this big ripple effect. And I feel like everyone, including, including me, just hoping that Federer can, can end this now on his own terms and not on his knees terms and can allow as many fans as possible to, to see him again and to maybe just appreciate the fact that they are seeing him for the last time. Terms, you know, those things about terms, I don't know. I don't know what anyone, I don't know what those terms are. You know, these, those kind of, it's like, yeah, I guess, but I, I, I really, I really wonder if he's going to, what's, what his plan for the U S open now is. You know, there's um, a great line from the old sports broadcaster, Keith Olbermann, controversial guy, but a great sportscaster. Um, he was reading some baseball highlights and he was reading off the uh, injured reserve list for and and he said uh, so and so is you know Ricky Henderson is listed as day to day and then he goes aren't we all so you <laughs> never know you just never know um, that being said uh, to exit Wimbledon that way on a bagel I just I'm not a predictor either, but I bet you anything he would like one more shot. And so what he might do, just, you know, a theory or not even a theory, but just a, this maybe could happen is for the Laver Cup, he could be like in Ryder Cup, non-playing captain. You know, I think you said, Joel, like presiding over the thing and, um, and then maybe just start fresh in 2022 or not. Who knows? Um, but like you said, Gil, I mean, people need to say their goodbyes. <laughs> so um, hopefully he, he's got more tennis in him. But we'll see. You know, when you talk about uh, bagels, Jimmy Connors personified the U.S. Open. His last match at the U.S. Open lost yeah. in four sets. Stephon Lendl, 6-0 in the fourth. It happens. And it's, and you know, and it's, it's okay, but it is kind of interesting for us. Like this... The, this announcement, Federer, is the one that's most shaken me to think, might this be really the time to, to ponder the goodbye in a way they never have before. None of the injuries, whether it's the back or the knees, the 2016 knee injury, that did not make me think that Roger Federer was, you know, going off into the sunset. But this is one that just leaves me concerned, wondering, because, I, I, you know, because, again, we're all greedy. We love seeing this guy play. I don't want yeah. to just have my YouTube for the rest of my life, but maybe we ought to talk some about some of our, uh, our as he's 40, a little uh, reflection on some of our great federal yeah. moments. 
Well, 100%, Joel, I just want to say, I, I completely agree that this, again, I think, you know, at least uh, I know Amy and I were on the same page after Wimbledon that mentally, as far as his belief goes, that the loss to Hercotch was not going to get in the way of him continuing. Um, now, physically, it's another story. Like if the knee won't cooperate, the knee won't cooperate. And it just seems like that's what's happening. So yeah, yeah, this this last announcement, this withdrawal, I think uh, is definitely the most alarming that that we've seen for sure, because it's been it's getting very repetitive. I, I think that's the best way to put it. It's getting very repetitive. It'll be the body. It'll not be the results. I mean, you know, there's, I don't think any great champion, whether it's Roger Federer or Jimmy Connors or Pete Sampras or Martina Navratilova, is going to let a score determine, oh, if, I, if I'm losing to this guy, that's not it. It's going to be, is the body in the present, in the state of being to put in the work to then make the effort, to then make the go of it. That's why Sampras finally quit. It's like he knew he could show up at Wimbledon and play some matches, but if he really wants to be put in the kind of tennis that he needs to put, are you willing to put in the work week in and week out when people aren't watching and play the other tournaments? Because that's what it's really about. And that's why Federer announcing that he's not going to play those two events is a real source of concern. Sorry, let's get to some favorite Roger Federer moments after this, but didn't didn't John? Didn't Brad Gilbert send John McEnroe into retirement a couple times? Was that? Oh, no, not no. I'll tell that, you exactly. I have that wrong. Yeah, he sent him into a sabbatical. Gilbert Gilbert's career record with McEnroe was one in thirteen. But one time he beat him was in early '86 at the year-end Masters, and McEnroe at the time had been kind of toppled at the U.S. Open by Lendl at the '85 Open. Um, McEnroe is getting very involved in his romance with Tatum O'Neill. Gilbert beats him. And then Macro said, all right, I got it. I need a little sabbatical, sabbatical. And okay. so Macro took off a good part of the early part of 86. And then he came back. But in the wake of that, he never was quite as effective as he'd been. He was, he, he got to like, from that point on, he got to like uh, three slam semis. But so Gilbert kind of, but, the, but it's not, it's not about Brad Gilbert. And Macro can say that it's about John Macro's skill and where his motivation is. Okay. I just, I, I felt like, uh, reading, uh, Brad's book. I feel like if I'm, and it was a long time ago, but I feel like Brad made it sound like, um, like John was like, if I can't beat Brad Gilbert, yeah, I'm but, done. Yeah. But that's, but that's, 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 park, that's park thinking. And I think, I mean, that's park thinking and that's not, yeah. Macro says that. And that's, that's, that's where the world of what, of these sound bites and these comments kind of belies what the game is about. And Macro knew yeah. that it's really about his own, his own motivation, his own work ethic, and his own where he was at with his tennis at that point. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's uh, let's reflect on some favorite moments in honor of of Federer's fortieth birthday. Um, I have one in mind, um, so I, I guess I'll go first. Um, it was the year after Federer in the semifinal hit the tweener winner passing shot against Djokovic. And I felt that the tweener at that time was a little bit less mainstream. It was, of course, it had been done. Federer did not invent it by any stretch. But that became a very famous tweener. That was in 2009. In 2010, I was at either Federer, I believe it was his first round match against Brian Dabul, a lefty <laughs> Argentinian, I believe. 
And that was the, the tweener was the previous year. It was fresh in everyone's mind. And Dabul hit a lob over Federer's head. And I remember the buzz of the crowd. As soon as the ball goes over Federer's head, it rose and it rose and it rose. And Federer smirks a little bit and hits a tweener with a smile on his face. And it was a clean winner. And I believe it was more impressive than the Djokovic passing shot because Dabul was at the baseline in perfect position to retrieve this tweener. But no, clean winner, didn't even move for it. And Dabul's expression on his face was also priceless because it was like, all right. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, the crowd then gave about a three-minute ovation to Roger Federer after this shot. Um, Arthur Ashe, night session. Um, and that was my, that's a moment that I'll never forget in the first round of the U S open. Nice. That's a good one. I think, um, I'll try to be brief cause I've got three little things I want to mention. The first one is at Indian Wells a few years back. Um, I was in an interview room with Roger Federer, like a press conference room. And um, this was my first opportunity to be able to ask a question directly to Roger Federer. And I sat up front and I sat in the middle so that he would be basically looking right at me. And I was nervous. I was so nervous. And I was starting to chicken out and I was texting my friend right before he walked in. I don't know if I can go through with this. I don't know why I'm nervous because I've interviewed dozens of athletes in in this situation and in one-on-ones. I'm talking Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, you name it. And for some reason, I was really nervous just because tennis is my sport and I have that connection. So I, I finally raised my hand. I asked the question and he looked right at me and it was almost as if the rest of the room went completely dark and he and I were in a tunnel and he was at the end of the tunnel and the hairs on my arm stood up as he answered the question and he he answered in a way that it it related to an aspect of my game that's a real bugaboo and he looked at me and he said you know what I mean and, and you could still find this in the transcript. And I'm like, yes, I know what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. And I, it was just a, a moment where I felt like Federer was talking directly to me and somehow he knew, he knew. So um, that was my favorite personal Federer moment. My favorite playing Federer moment was when he came back and won the 2017 Australian Open and he beat Rafa in five sets. I like that. Oh, okay. Well, it, it has to do with aging and, and people saying that um, he's done, he's gone, he's out, a retire old man, and then he comes back and wins more slams. But I, this is like, I hate to even mention this on his birthday, but there is an, another incident that I know about. It didn't happen to me. It happened to one of my good friends where it was very, very early in his career, his first win at Wimbledon. And he did something, he behaved in a little bit of a temperamental way um, that we can laugh about, but I'm not going to share that on his birthday. I'll share that another time. Go ahead, Joel. Um, well, first, yeah, the 17 Australia, and I was, I, I was in the Tennis Channel broadcast booth working that, and to watch that happen, obviously he hadn't won a slam in more than four years, down 3-1 in the fifth to his great rival Nadal, and he pulls off some just incredible tennis, 
with the revamp one handed backhand that I remember that black and white, that shirt he was wearing, that check shirt. And I remember that the scene after is him, of him walking through the you know, subterranean Aussie Open, walking through with the trophy with the security guards. I just thought the whole thing was just, was just beautiful. You could see how much it meant to him. And that was great. Um, watching him practice has always been a joy to see because there's something really languid about just watching a pro practice. So to watch him practice one year, I, um, I flew into Wimbledon. I got in that uh, Friday morning, checked into where I was staying and I walked to get my credential. And then I said, wow, there he is on four, court 14 and me and there are like eight other people there. Uh, and I was sitting alongside the hall of fame broadcaster, John Barrett, who's a friend of mine. I thought, wow, this is a pretty nice way to make a living. This is pretty good. Yeah. I'm watching this and he's so relaxed and 10 feet away. Um, that was great. And then I'll say, Amy, you mentioned your interview experience and that was great. Um, one of the first times I had a chance for a one-on-one -on -one with him was at 06 Indian Wells. And usually you do these one-on-ones after their match, after their press conference, and the player gets told, oh, yeah, there's this one-on-one. -on -one. And the guy from the ATP, Nicole Arzani, said to me, he goes, well, Roger, Roger, yeah, he's, uh, he's a little tired from this match today. Could he do it tomorrow? And I thought, oh, no, because when they say the next day, something bad could happen, something else. I want to do the interview now. And of course, what am I going to say? No. So I said, so I said, sure. Okay. So I walked into Federer's press conference, Fed's press conference after the match, he won before, before he'd said he didn't, he couldn't do the interview today. And I looked at him, I said, I looked at him, I go, so tomorrow we're going to do the interview win or lose. Right. And he looks at me, he goes, win or lose. Yes. Because I wanted to make sure he agreed to it because I've had times where they, they lose and they're gone. But so, so I waited about 24 hours for him to play his next match. It was versus Gasquet and he won. And that means I, he won. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, at that point, the rivalry was one and one though. I checked mm. it out. This is early. This is 06. And, and he was very gracious and had a very nice one-on-one. -on -one. But I think the ways he's so enriched the game, like look at these experiences, whether it's a match, a creative shot, practice, interpersonal interactions, all these gracious, fun ways that make the sport so much fun to be around. So engaging and how much he's enriched. Again, please, this is not a, this is not a eulogy for Roger Federer, but this is just a, a celebration of him at 40. Incredible. Yeah. Happy 40th birthday to Roger Federer. That'll do it for this episode of three. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. Make sure you follow, you subscribe, you leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. If you're watching on YouTube, like, comment, subscribe, and we will see you next time on the next episode of 3.